Tonight we are reading from Malachi, chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 10. You'll find that on page 801 of the Church Bibles. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Amen. Uh, thanks, Rohan, for reading for us. Um, my name's Adam. If we haven't met, I lead the student team here. Uh, you're all really welcome to Chalmers this evening. Um, we're really glad that you're here. And um, please could you keep that passage open in front of you? Um, it starts on page 801 of the Church Bibles, uh, Malachi chapter 2. Um, you might have picked up when Rohan was reading that our passage touches on two themes that are deeply sensitive. Marriage to unbelievers and divorce. And we always need God's help when we come to listen to his words. Um, but let me pray particularly in light of these topics, um, with all that they may conjure up in our minds, that we would hear God speak to us. So let me pray. Our Creator and our Father, we thank you that you know each and every one of us in this room. And as we come to a passage that may be painful for many, we ask that you would speak to each one of us by your Holy Spirit and that we would hear your voice clearly, the message that you wrote through the prophet Malachi. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, tonight we are on deeply sensitive territory on the topics of marriage and divorce. Um, and I'm aware how it can sound when someone of my age and stage speaks on this subject. Um, and that's why it's a really good thing that the next 30 minutes are not my own personal reflections on divorce and marriage between believers and unbelievers. Instead, um, the reason we're talking about this, and this is what we think the whole point of preaching is in general, um, my job is to pass on what God is saying through this passage of his words. Um, and so please don't hear this as my reflections or my advice, but as our creator addressing us through his words. And I'm keen to say this early, that whatever your history in these areas, you are all really welcome here. And um, we do mean that. 
I'm aware that there will be a range of experiences in the room in this whole area, and too many to name all of them now. But I'm aware there will be some who are divorced for a whole range of reasons, some remarried, others not, others affected by the divorce, perhaps, of parents. There will be some who are happily married, others unhappily married. There will be some who are Christians married to someone who is not a Christian. Others will be dating or considering dating someone who isn't a Christian. And so many others, those who are widowed, those who are not married, those who would long to be married. So those of us who feel that they have messed up in either of these two areas that we'll touch on this evening, um, the language of this passage may feel strong. God does take the conduct of his people in the realms of marriage to people who don't serve him and in divorce seriously. But I'm keen that um, for those of us who have messed up in either of these areas, um, that we do hear the weight of this message, um, but in doing so that we take it to the cross if we're trusting uh, trusting in Jesus and don't feel crushed. God's grace is enough. But I do just want to say one more thing by way of introduction, and that is to assure you that this passage does have things to say to all of us. For every person for whom this feels close to the bone, I'm sure there will be many others of us who are tempted to think this message is distant um, and has very little uh, to say to us. And particularly, I suppose, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Uh, Let me assure you that while the presenting issues among Israel at the time uh, Malachi was speaking are to do with marriage and divorce, this passage in its context has fundamental things to say to us about ourselves and about God's. Things of of extreme importance to all of us. Now Malachi's message was one of exhortation. We know that from the refrain that's repeated twice. Um, And the key word of this passage is uh, faithless. It's repeated five times. Um, But we get this exhortation. Have a look down with me at verse 15, halfway through. Verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And at the end, verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. So our passage and Malachi's message was an exhortation and not to be faithless. And as I've been saying, there are two areas um, in particular where Israel, God's people, are being called to stop being faithless. Uh, The first is in marrying unbelievers, and the second is in uh, groundless divorce. So we'll look at those in turn. So first, um, they're marrying idol worshippers, or marrying unbelievers, Um, The key issue is spelled out in verse 11, and let me read again from halfway through that verse. Verse 11, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. That expression, daughter of a foreign god, is referring to women from other nations who worship idols and not the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And the issue is that Israelite men are marrying women from the nations around who serve other gods. And it is really important to say quickly that this is a religious thing and not a racial thing. And you do get a hint of that here in Malachi. And he does choose the phrase daughter of a foreign gods and to make the point that the key issue is her allegiance to another gods. 
And on top of that, in our Bibles, we've actually got a record of the specific law of God's that they were breaking here, um, all the way back in Deuteronomy. Um, No need to turn there, but let me read a couple of verses. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, and it says this uh, to God's people. You shall not intermarry with them, that's the surrounding nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Um, And here's the reason it gives. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so let's be clear, this was never about race. And in fact, there are examples throughout the Old Testament of Israelites marrying foreigners who had turned to fear the Lord. Instead, what's at stake is Israel's wholehearted devotion to the one true God. Israel are marrying women who worship idols risking their hearts being turned from the one true God to the false gods of the nations around. And I take it that explains why the language in this passage and how God assesses and punishes what's going on is so severe. I guess um, the first thing that might have jumped out at you when we heard the reading was the finality of the punishments in verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. Or you might think about the words God uses to describe what his people are doing. Verse 10, faithless and profane. Or again in verse 11, faithless and profane. And maybe strongest of all, uh, God says that this, what's happening is an abomination. And at first glance, maybe particularly if you're new to what Christians believe, and this might all sound a bit extreme. I mean, why does God care that much about who Christians marry? Hasn't he got more important things to worry about? Well, that's until you realize how high the stakes are. Notice where we started back in verse 10, and notice the key words. So verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? One Father, one God. For a start, this verse reminds Israel of their unity as a nation. They all belong to and have their origin in the same gods. But surely it also speaks of the oneness of that gods, his uniqueness, his incomparability, his exclusivity. God is one. And I take it in, in the background as one of the key confessions of God's people um, from the Old Testament. Um, It would have been recited in Israelite households over the breakfast table every morning and at the bedside every evening. Um, It's in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this God demands wholehearted and undivided devotion. And yet, because of these marriages to idol worshippers, In households in Israel where the oneness of God is being proclaimed over the morning cereal, for there is a family trip to the idol temple after dinner in the evening. As verse 11 puts it, God's sanctuary or his holiness is being profaned. As these marriages compromise the distinctive and dedicated worship of the nation of Israel to the one true God's. And what's striking is this isn't a new problem for the people in Malachi's day. And remember, um, if you've been with us in Malachi, these are the people who came back to the land of Israel after the exile. 
And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, um, what's going on with these returned exiles should be setting off alarm bells. Because what's happening now, and this issue of marrying worshippers of foreign gods, well, that is exactly what set the cogs in motion, which eventually led to the exile in the first place. In 1 Kings chapter 11, no need to turn there, and just after the high point in Israel's history, when everything seemed to be going to plan, we see King Solomon's heart turn from God towards idols because of his marriages with those who worship false gods. And here we are in Malachi, and we see it happening again with the people who came back from the exile, who were supposed to return to the Lord with all their heart and all their soul to receive God's blessing. Well, to see that, it seems like God's plan has gone off track. And we'll see more on that later. And really, actually, next week in Malachi is when we start to see what God is going to do about that, um, which ultimately tees up God sending his son, the Lord Jesus, in the New Testament. But before we get there, I do want to pause and apply this exhortation to us today, because I take it it does apply to Christians, too. And the New Testament clearly echoes this teaching that Christians are not to marry unbelievers. And 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, is the clearest place that is taught. And I take it this issue of compromised devotion to the one true God is as much in play for us now as it was for them then. And I take it brothers and sisters who are married to an unbeliever would testify that it does make it harder to be devoted to God when the person with whom you share the closest earthly relationship doesn't love him. Um, And I want to quickly say, if that is you, and if you are married to someone who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, um, then it is really important to say that there are lots of encouragements in the New Testament that it is possible um, to live a life of devotion to God, married to an unbeliever. But if there is anyone here uh, listening in, and you would call yourself a Christian, and you're considering marrying or dating, um, or perhaps you're in a relationship with someone who isn't a Christian, and I know this won't be easy to hear, then an absolutely right response to this passage is to break that relationship off. Please don't harden your hearts to God's words. As Christians who worship the one God, we ought not to walk into a relationship casually that could compromise that. Someone I knew at university, um, he, when I met him, he was a keen Christian. He was committed to his church family. Um, he was one of the people who welcomed me and looked out for me when I was new around church. But one day he started dating someone who wasn't a Christian. And not too long after, he turned his back on all of it. Uh, it's not easy to hear, but the stakes are high. So that's the first issue, a marriage with unbelievers. And the second issue is in the realm of divorce. Um, but before we get there, Malachi takes us briefly to the temple in verse 13. Um, verse 13, let me read that again for us. It's over the page in the church Bibles. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? And here we have a really sad image. And the people are bringing their gifts and offerings to God. And that God is turning them away. 
Um, now, God is right to do that. We've already begun to see why. They are faithlessly breaking his covenant and marrying idol worshippers um, against his commands. Um, and in a moment, we'll look at this other issue um, of their groundless divorce. Um, so God is right to do that. Um, and I think on one level, there is a warning here for us, uh, a warning against religious hypocrisy. And it says to us, we can't cover up lives uh, lived in unrepentant rebellion against God with our religious works. We can't disregard God's teaching in a certain area and think that, well, because we show up at church or um, pray morning and evening um, or serve in, in church, that God will start saying that what we're doing is okay. And so I think it does apply to us uh, as a warning. Um, but this question at the end of verse 14, um, why does he not? Um, I think that the people then um, had a better reason to ask that question than we might at first think. Um, God no longer regards the offering. Why does he not? Why doesn't God accept our offerings? Why isn't God blessing us? Um, I guess at first we might think they're being pretty dim, um, but I take it they had reason to believe that things would be better between them and God when they returned from the exile. And in many ways, this gets us back to the heart of what's going on in the book of Malachi. And this might be familiar if you were here the very first evening in Malachi a few weeks ago, um, but don't worry if, if it's not. Um, so remember, the people in Malachi's day were disappointed. They come back from the exile, um, and they came back expecting a time of great blessing, greater blessing than even the best times before the exile. Um, and this wasn't the, of their own invention. They had good reason to expect this. Prophets like Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, and even the book of Deuteronomy had given them these great expectations. They come back and rebuilt the temple in obedience to God's, um, but there was a problem. Um, there was no blessing. In fact, the land was tiny. There was no king, and the rebuilt temple um, was pathetic in their eyes. What they saw before their eyes, day by day, and what they read about in their Bibles, were miles apart. Like a misleading Airbnb advert, they'd been sold a vision of a glorious and beautiful and blessed land, but when they arrived, they found a crumbling mess. Why wasn't God blessing them and accepting their offerings? Um, and I think it's fair to say Malachi's message has got two sides to it. On the one hand, it is a message to repent, um, as we've begun to see. And as chapter 3, verse 7 puts it, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Um, so on the one hand, it's a message of repentance. Um, but on the other hand, I take it Malachi is here to lay the groundwork for the arrival of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Um, we'll see that next week, um, that God himself is going to come and act as a refiner and purifier of his people, um, which he does when he sends his son to earth. And there will be root and branch reform, starting with the priesthood and reaching all of the people, and so that God's people's offerings are acceptable to him once more. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, so we'll have more on that next week. But this passage is in some ways showing the necessity um, of what we'll see next week of God's visits to purify and refine. 
Israel have returned from exile, but they're still committing the same sin that kicked off the process that sent them into exile in the first place. They are faithless towards God, and they are breaking his covenants. And there is a sin problem that is bigger than just the symptoms of marrying unbelievers and groundless divorce. And so praise God for his son. He gives us forgiveness and new hearts under the new covenants. Um, But let's come back to the presenting issue. And the issue is, as we've said, the issue of groundless divorce. And it's there in verse 16. Let me read that for us. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Um, I do say groundless divorce. um, Because sadly, we live in a fallen world. And because the Bible is honest about the mess of our worlds, there are extreme instances where divorce is permitted for Christians. And sadly, it occasionally ends up being the only course of action. Um, And the Bible does permit it in these extreme few cases. Um, I won't go into what those are now, um, but if that is something that affects you, please do speak to someone about that. Um, Or please come and grab me at the end, and I can chat more on that. But here we're in the realm of groundless divorce. Um, in, the, in the original um, context in Malachi's day, men were divorcing their wives as they saw fit, um, possibly and likely in order to marry these idol worshippers from earlier. Um, and God's response is strong. In that verse I read a few moments ago, verse 16, um, he describes it as violence. And again, there's that repeated word, faithless. And verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, faithless. And God says it goes directly against his design for marriage. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And he's calling back to Genesis 2 and the foundation of marriage, where God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And as Jesus applies this in the New Testament, and this idea that God has joined two people together in marriage, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a strong God-forged bond between two people that is not intended to be broken. Verse 14 of our passage describes a marriage as a covenant, And that's significant. It's to reflect the covenant relationship that God has with his people Israel. It is a binding agreement not to be broken. In the world today, divorce rates are high, even among Christians. And I think it's fair to say, in general, people are working less hard at their marriages than in the past. And divorce is becoming an easy way out when the passion dwindles or goals in life diverge or whatever else it may be. I don't know if anyone is in this position currently, but this passage does make it clear um, that it would be wrong as a Christian to get a divorce. And with his extreme caveats that I alluded to earlier in mind. It's fair to say that the world today, and and, and even we as Christians, we don't value marriage as highly as God does. And God prizes faithfulness, even when it's hard. And God perfectly embodies that faithfulness in his relationship with his people Israel. 
We see throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, they rebel against him. But God is determined to set his love on them and to bless them. I think to any Christians who are married, and this passage should resonate with us on the level of encouraging us to work hard at our marriages and to guard ourselves. To remember the promises we made to love and cherish for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or health. God made you one, and you're committed to one another by covenants. And our faithfulness and it's a lofty call, is to reflect the covenant faithfulness of God's. And I'm aware there may be some um, listening who are in um, marriages that are struggling, and um, for whatever reason, um, but working hard at it. And so please hear this passage as an encouragement to keep going in that. And in a church family, when we're on the topic of sin, there are always people listening who have been deeply affected by what we're talking about. Um, Either regrets we have about ways that we've messed up or ways that we've been hurt by the sin of others. And if you are sitting here and you're aware that this is an area that you've made mistakes in the past, well, then I'm sure this passage is humbling and hard to hear. Um, And I do want to be quick to remind you of the cross where Jesus bore every last sin of those who repent and trust in him, taking our guilt and bearing the punishment that we deserve. And so please uh, don't go away crushed um, by what we thought about this evening. Please remember all of our past sin is nailed to the cross. Just as I close, I want to zoom out to the big picture Um, and the underlying heart attitude in Malachi. And we touched on this earlier. And we said that the people in Malachi, um, they were experiencing great disappointments. Disappointment at God, and disappointment in his promises. Disappointment that their return from exile didn't bring the blessing they expected. And this disappointment led to them saying this. This is chapter 3, verse 14. Um, Have a look over there. Chapter 3, verse 14. And this is what the people say. It is vain to serve gods. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In other words, to sum up the attitude of the people, they, they feel like it makes no difference whether you serve and obey God or not. God doesn't seem to be blessing them, and he doesn't seem to be doing anything about evil. To a disappointed people who think God won't bless those who serve him, it is easy to compromise following his rules in in the realm of marriage and divorce. And I suppose us today, we also live in a time where it's not always obvious that those who serve God are being blessed. In fact, it can even feel like those who don't serve God are getting on a whole lot better. It would be easy for us to ask, what is the profit of our keeping God's charge? Um, And if there is anyone um, tempted to feel like that, uh, well, then compromising on who we marry or giving up on a frustrating marriage, seeking out blessing on our own terms, I take it these are real risks um, to be watchful of. 
if that temptation towards disappointment with God and an attitude that it makes no difference whether, whether or not we serve him, well, if that's in our hearts, then we should stay on guards for how we live in these realms. Um, and please keep listening to Malachi. Um, it is a strong remedy for that underlying disappointment and heart attitudes. I want to say also that uh, this is a highly distinctive thing in our worlds. Um, our world prizes romantic fulfillment extremely highly. Our world encourages the pursuit of this fulfillment um, often above marital commitments. And the idea that a Christian would refrain from a relationship with someone just because they're not a Christian um, strikes people as odds. While romance probably wasn't the big driver for the people in Malachi's day, um, I take it Malachi 2 does speak into this. Denying a relationship with someone who doesn't love God for the sake of devotion to him is costly, but worth it. And for those striving in this area, I hope this passage is a great encouragement to you. Um, this is an opportunity to reflect to the world the worth and devotion, uh, worth of devotion to the one true God's. But we mentioned to you earlier, this passage has more to say to us beyond the presenting issues of marriage and divorce. And remember, we're in a unique point in Israel's history where after the exile, which was supposed to be a time when God's people returned to him with all their heart and all their soul, it was supposed to be a time when God blessed his people. It was supposed to be like a new creation. But clearly this hasn't happened. Israel are falling back into one of the major sins which led to the exile in the first place, and they haven't learned their lesson. And so as well as having things to say to us about how we ought to live as Christians in the realm of marriage and divorce, this passage in Malachi 2 also tees up a problem, the hard hearts of humanity, which the rest of Malachi and indeed the New Testament will answer with the Lord Jesus. Lots more on that next week. Um, but for now, let's be thankful for living after Jesus came um, in a time uh, when we can know the full forgiveness of the gospel and the ongoing transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let me pray to close. Our Father in heaven, for those of us who love you, but perhaps are conscious of ways in which we've messed up in the past, we ask that you would comfort us with the glorious truths of the gospel. We ask that you would lead us to the cross to find complete free forgiveness and cleansing in the blood of Jesus. Help us to have confidence in that, in the face of doubts and accusing thoughts. Father, we pray for any for whom this passage has been a challenge and to current conduct in this area. We pray that you would give grace and help to obey what your word says. We ask that you would give all of us confidence and conviction that it is right to obey you, even when it's costly. And we thank you, Father, that we hear your words as a church family, surrounded by people who know us and care for us. So we ask particularly for those who have been acutely affected by the topics that we've thought about this evening, that you would help us to love one another, and that you would help us to speak your truth in love. We pray that you would grant us wisdom. Finally, Father, we thank you that we can read about this time in Israel's history where it looked like your plan was failing, 
and know that you stepped in to do something about it when you sent your son into the world. We thank you that he gives us forgiveness and gives us hearts of flesh in place of our hearts of stone. Please help us to appreciate Jesus and his work more and more. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.